Good morning. Um, before I forget, just a reminder for the deaconesses that you're going to be meeting with me and Donna today. Let's do it in the library directly after the service. I say so that only um, applies to about 10 people, but they need to be there. So I had to make that announcement again right after the service. And um, just to let you know, I'm going to be a little bit mellow today. Uh, my voice is going to be a little bit softer than usual. I have to sing this afternoon, and I've been trying not to, to, to raise my voice. Um, which reminds me, if you, if you like classical music a lot, and if you like choral music in particular, you can come and see the uh, Winston-Salem Symphony and Chorus's final presentation of uh, Haydn's Creation today at uh, 3 o'clock up at uh, Reynolds Auditorium. Uh, that's where I'll be. It's a different kind of worship music. It's a very different kind of worship music than what we've been singing um, today, but it's, it's been uh, great, great to sing, and, and so that's where I'll be. So I, I, I committed that I was not going to be a firebrand screaming preacher this morning, and I've been singing the songs um, very softly this, for the most part this morning. Um, the problem is I'm preaching about anger. Um, <laughs> so we're just going to have a very angry, quiet time here. Um, but uh, honestly, we've been, we've been doing this, this series about our emotions and how to engage them uh, as believers in Christ, and, and we've talked about a number of them. And two weeks ago, before Easter, we started talking about anger, and we learned a few things just to review. We learned, first of all, that anger is not some sort of evil or sub-Christian emotion, but it is something that God has built into us for a reason, the ability to feel anger. And in fact, that God feels anger himself. Um, we learned that anger, uh, like our other emotions, reflects our values and our priorities. Anger, anger is what we feel when something important to us is either under attack or is in danger of being taken from us, or maybe we won't get it at all. Okay, so anger is what we feel when something that we love, something that is very important to us, is under attack or when there's a possibility of us not receiving it, otherwise known as a blocked goal. And we found out last two weeks ago that one of the problems that we have with our anger is because of our messed up priorities, because maybe we don't love the things and the people that we should as much as we should, and, and, and maybe we, we love and appreciate other things too much because our, our priorities are messed up a little bit, we often get angry for the wrong reasons and at the wrong things. There is an inappropriate and petty anger that too often takes hold in our hearts. Often, you know, we get mad at the driver in front of us for going slow. We get mad at the referee who called a penalty on our kid. We get mad at the network that cancels our favorite television show, right? I mean, those things get to us maybe more than they should. But then we also found out that there is a godly kind of anger. There is a righteous, godly anger that we should have more often than we do because that anger reflects the character and the values and, in fact, the anger of God himself. God does get angry about injustice, he gets angry when people are abused and mistreated. He gets angry when the truth of his gospel is corrupted or compromised or neglected. And those things should make us angry as well. Today we're going to shift gears and we're going to talk about how to respond to anger. But as we do that, as we look at how we should respond or not respond to our anger, we also have to admit that there are a lot of things that make us angry that are kind of in between. They're not that petty kind of anger that we know we shouldn't have about something stupid, but on the other hand, maybe they're not, 
you know, up there being a really big affront and offense to God so that we could say that all of our anger is righteous anger. Let me give you an example, and this is kind of a silly one. But let's say that you have a neighbor who walks his dog up the street every day, and almost every day he lets his dog poop on your lawn, and he never cleans it up, okay? Sometimes you even get the privilege of watching this happen through your front window. And you can't believe that someone could be that rude, that inconsiderate, that, and just violate your world in that way, and it makes you mad. Now, you'd probably agree with me that this is not a 10 out of 10 on the, on the evil scale, right? At the same time, though, it's, it's pretty intolerable, right? It would drive you a little bit crazy, and the more it happens, the more exasperated you become. Now, you have several choices. You can just live with it. Watch this dog every day keep doing its thing on your lawn and get more and more eaten up inside with resentment and hatred for your neighbor. Or you can lose your temper, right? You can, you can throw the window open one day and you can scream and you can curse the guy out for being a thoughtless and inconsiderate jerk, right? And by the way, your dog is really ugly too, you know, <laughs> whatever you might say. Or, or you, can, you can do the same thing in another way. You can complain to all the other neighbors and tell them the same thing. Or you can go passive-aggressive. You start collecting the poop. You know, and then one, one day you just spread like two weeks of it out on the guy's front porch with a sign that says, any of this look familiar to you? you know? <laughs> Some of us get creative when we get angry. I've never done this to anyone, by the way. <laughs> but you will probably agree with me that, that all of those responses are inadequate and wrong in their own way. And most people would agree that you're eventually going to end up needing to have, or at least to attempt to have, a civil, if awkward, and tense conversation with your neighbor. And the more I think about it, maybe this whole example is is really just a metaphor for the way we deal with all of our anger, right? Do we internalize it? Does it build up? Do we just let it out? I mean, How much poop are we going to put up with before something has to give, you might ask yourself, right? And as we get get to our scripture passage today, which is in Ephesians 4, if you haven't already turned there, you can, Ephesians 4, we're going to see these choices that I just mentioned are really form a kind of catalog of inappropriate responses to anger that the Bible identifies as well. So let's let's go ahead and read through our passage, Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 22. (coughs) Excuse me, I need to make a field trip to the front row. Ephesians 4, 22. And we're going to start in the middle of a sentence, but you'll, you'll figure it out. Paul writing here to the Ephesian church and to us. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only which is as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. 
And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. A couple of um, just brief observations about this passage before we look into it. First of all, I started reading in verse 22 because I wanted to remind you that, that properly dealing with anger, which is one of the things this passage talks about, is part of being the new self, the new self, living out our, our new life in Christ that God gives us when we become believers. In other words, this is Holy Spirit-empowered stuff. This is supernatural stuff that isn't natural. The things that God is calling us to do in this passage are hard. They're difficult. This is not some kind of just-add-water kind of recipe for dealing with this. In fact, when we, when we do this, we may mess it up. We may mess it up badly. There may be misunderstandings. There may, you may try to do the right thing, and the problem will even escalate. This happens to us sometimes. Things might get worse before they get better. Even if they're ultimately headed in the right direction, it might seem like you know three steps back and then two steps forward. God sometimes asks us as his followers to do hard things. And you know what? Dealing with our anger in a proper way is hard. It's one of those hard things. So let's note that. Secondly, let's note this also, that the passage is written to the church, right? And the interactions that Paul describes here are happening in the context of the body of Christ, so with other Christians. And indeed, Christians, as we relate to one another, should ultimately be better at this than the world at large because we do have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We do have the example and the instruction of Jesus. And Paul reminds us in verse 25, he says, you're members of one another. That's a pretty tight relationship. We're members of one another. That is a close intimate, interdependent relationship. The people that you get mad at that are in the body of Christ are people that you need to complete you. You're not the same without them. And yet, in that same verse, I I don't know if you noticed this, but Paul calls us neighbors. Neighbors. He doesn't say brothers and sisters there. He says neighbors. So even in the church, there's a kind of neighborly relationship. Now, what are neighbors? How do neighbors deal with each other? Well, neighbors are people who have to live life in close proximity to one another, and when they do that, we're going to be jostling one another. We're going to be bumping into each other. We're going to be stepping on each other's toes. And we need to kind of get used to that. We need to figure out where the boundaries are, and we need to learn how to get along with each other, just like any other neighbors would have to do. To me, this also implies, by the way, that even though these verses are about how to treat your brothers and sisters in Christ, they are also very applicable to the relationships that you have and the way that you treat those who are outside of the body of Christ, your neighbors who are not believers in Jesus. Now, let's just go quickly through these wrong responses. All right? We're going to look at the, at the Greek words, the original words in the New Testament, and, and what they mean um, when Paul lists these, these inappropriate responses. Last time we said there were really two tendencies, and most of us have one or the other. You're either going to blow up in your anger, or you're going to bottle up your anger. You're going to blow up, or you're going to bottle it up. And we said both of those were, were wrong. So let's look at the blowing up options first. They're actually all down in verse 31, the second to last verse that we read. So listen up here and, and see, you know, look at your own heart, your own life, your own responses, and see if maybe one or more of these words describes the way that you often find yourself responding in your anger. Okay, we're going to skip over the word bitterness for now. That's the first one for a reason, but that's a special case. We're going to take it later. The next word in my translation is wrath. 
You might have rage. Uh, but wrath, this, this word is when you reach your boiling point and then your fury spills out or it explodes, okay? Possibly even in some violent way toward another person or maybe more often toward a nearby object, okay? That is, that is wrath. You're, gonna, you're blowing up or you're boiling over. The next word is just the word anger, which is is normal word for anger, but in this context, it is directly it is directed specifically at a person. So remember, two weeks ago, we talked about when you're angry, and when you release your anger, we should not release our anger on a person, we release our anger on a problem, not the person. But this is when that anger gets directed very intentionally at a person. You may even find yourself forming a kind of vendetta against a person. That's anger. The next word I have is clamor. The third word, clamor, that is opening, open, open complaining. We call it belly aching here, okay? That's clamor, but there's different versions of it. And by the way, lots of complaining, lots of criticism, lots, that, that is most often an outward expression of an inward rage that you haven't dealt with. You're angry, you haven't dealt with it properly, so it comes out, in your case, and in many people's cases, not as an explosion, not as screaming and yelling, but as a constant stream of negativity or sarcasm or criticism. And as a result, your relationships may not be blowing up, but they might be dying the death of a thousand cuts. Slander is the next word. That is language that is used to tear somebody down. Now, usually, we're, we're pretty delicate about this, okay, especially in the South where we're so friendly, you know, so we use bless his heart kind of stuff when we, when, when we slander people. And we, we usually do this with sarcasm or gossip because that's more socially acceptable. That's slander. Then the last word, malice, is basically just a New Testament word for wickedness, but in a relationship what it indicates is spite and hatred. So it's probably actually a good lead-in there to the other type of wrong response to anger, which is not to blow up, but to bottle it up inside. To bottle it up inside. Holding in your anger often looks a lot more spiritual, right? Especially at the beginning, you know, because you're just, here you are, you know, you're angry, but nobody knows it. You don't think. And so it looks more spiritual, it looks more righteous, it looks more godly at the beginning, but in the long run, the result of this, which is bitterness, bitterness, is often even worse than if you had blown up. Bitterness is probably Satan's favorite tool to use when he's attacking Christ's followers in their relationships with others. Here's what bitterness is. Bitterness is a settled attitude that wants to see something bad happen to another person. It is a settled attitude that's in your heart that wants to see something bad happen in the life of another person. Now, you might not want something all that bad. Maybe you just want them to be embarrassed. Maybe you want them to just get their, you know, kind of their just desserts. Maybe you, maybe you want outright revenge, and maybe you're plotting it. Maybe you won't ever do anything about it, but you think a lot about how you would exact it if you got the opportunity, right? But when anger is allowed to fester in your soul, bitterness, the word means acid, it means it, it's eating, it eats things away, and that's the result. It shows up in verse 31, and bitterness, by the way, is also referenced, though not by name, back in verse 27, as giving the devil a foothold. When you give way to your anger, you leave it in there, and it becomes bitterness, you are renting Satan a campsite in your heart. 
And it's going to be up to you whether you, you get rid of that campsite b- before he finishes putting up his tent or whether you allow him to bring in his camper and, and, and hook up all the utilities. The speaker at our recent district retreat called bitterness the poison we drink to kill someone else. So if that's the case, then who do you think bitterness affects the most? Not the person you're mad at, right? It affects you. It, it affects the person on the receiving end. Bitterness eats us up inside while, ironically, it does nothing to punish the person who hurt us. We're the only one in prison. So it ends up being a lose-lose. So what are we supposed to do to avoid these things? If we can't blow up and we can't bottle it up, then, you know, what's the answer? What's the strategy? Well, we get some very practical guidelines that all kind of lead in the same direction, actually, in verses 25, 26, and 29. Um, so let me go ahead and just read you the words that are there. They're very plain, but first of all, we're to speak truthfully to one another, to speak truthfully to one another. So one of the things that means is don't put on a happy face and pretend everything is okay, all right? Also, we're not to let our anger sit there and fester for a long time. In fact, Paul says we should do something about it in verse 26, before the sun goes down, if possible, which all goes to say that we need to confront it, to confront it which usually means having at least one difficult, tense, and maybe painful conversation with somebody. And when we have that conversation, whatever we say is not supposed to be for the purpose of venting or getting it off our chest. That is, some people think that's a biblical thing to do. Just let it out. No, that's not. It's not. You can vent to God, but venting to other people is not a biblical response. When we share, when we talk, when we have this kind of conversation, it is supposed to be for the for purpose of building up the other person and meeting the real needs of the moment. Okay? Now that sounds ideal, right? Oh yes, of course. It's hard. You know it's hard. It's hard. Now let me just give you one caveat first, okay? Because this is something that needs to come in even before we begin to talk about Ephesians 4. I need to tell you these verses do not cancel out Proverbs 19.11. And if you've ever learned Proverbs 19.11, it says this, that it is to your glory to overlook an offense. It is to your glory, a person's glory, to overlook an offense. Okay, so step one in this whole process is actually to go back and examine your anger and, and see what it's really saying about you and about your values and about your priorities and should you really be having this anger and it should, really, should it really be that big a deal to you in the first place. So maybe, maybe you can let this one go at least for now. That's okay. Ladies, your husband may occasionally fail to replace the toilet paper on the roll. Your husband may very frequently fail to replace the toilet paper on the roll. Your husband may almost every time fail to do this one very simple thing. Let me tell you something. My wife has gained a lot of glory in this area of her life. Now, not that she hasn't mentioned it, or I wouldn't know, but, but she has yet to throw the little plastic roller at me in her temper. I don't think she's plotting my demise for this reason. You know, and guys, I am sure there are things that your wives do from time to time that annoy you as well, although I can't think of what any of them are right now. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> But getting serious for a minute, I know these sound petty, but if if this kind of thing is actually a pattern in your life or in your relationship or in your marriage, 
And this is just one of about 20 or 30 thoughtless things that he does that communicate how little he values you and your priorities. Then yes, you probably need to have a difficult responsibility to head off that creeping bitterness and resentment that you're starting to feel. But step one, in many instances, is just to see if you can overlook the offense, because it's a godly thing to do. And, and marriage is one of those places where sometimes things that need to be talked about don't get talked about, but other times we decide to die on all the wrong hills. Now, when something gets past that point, when that's no longer possible, when the offense cannot be overlooked, when it's repeated maybe, or when it threatens to continue into the future, or when the hurt is just too deep and you just can't let bygones be bygones anymore, but your soul is crying out to you, this is unacceptable. Remember, two weeks ago we said that's what righteous anger says about a situation. It says this is unacceptable. When those words are legitimate, that's when something needs to be done. And you can't afford to wait forever either, right? You've got to do it pretty quickly because one thing that might happen in a situation like this is that multiple offenses build up. And so when you finally get around to having that conversation, you find yourself feeling like you have to go through a whole laundry list of offenses and issues, and that can get really discouraging for you and even more discouraging for the person that you're talking to. Or you don't want to be having this conversation either. When you, when you finally bring up an issue and the person says, wow, I had no idea that, was, that hurt you. How long have you been feeling like this? And you say, about nine years. That's not good either. That's why Paul says, don't give the devil an inch here. Don't give him any size campground in your life. Protect the ground of your relationship and deal with these things preferably before the sun goes down. You may not solve all your problems in five minutes and you may not even solve the problem before the sun goes down, but you can at least open the lines of communication in a kind and respectful way and agree to move forward. And again, it's a difficult thing. It's a difficult thing. It, it's really easy to mess this up. Years ago, I had someone come up and apologize to me for being angry with me. And that kind of surprised me because nobody had ever apologized to me for that particular thing before. And, but, but the person then followed up the apology by going into all the ways that I had made them angry. And at the time, I assumed that the apology was really just kind of an excuse, that the apology was kind of, you know, get a foot in the door to bring up all the other issues. But the, you know what? The more I look back on the conversation, I don't think that's what was happening. I think this person was attempting to obey Ephesians chapter 4. It's just that I didn't get it. I didn't understand, and the approach didn't work because the person didn't bring it up in the right way. Let me say something. This is hard. It's so hard. The conversation that you have needs to be approached prayerfully, and I will tell you this, that probably the most important thing that you can bring to a conversation about your anger is humility. It is the, it's the number one thing you need for that conversation is, is, is humility. And it's hard when you're angry because when you're angry, it's really easy to get self-righteous because you have something over the other person and you automatically think of yourself as more right, more godly than they are. And that's what you've got to shed and it's hard. Jesus is so clear about this. He says, before you get around to trying to take that speck out of your brother's eye, look at your own eye for a long time and make sure you don't have any logs in there before you go trying to have this conversation. And you know this yourself. It is so much easier to be approached by somebody who, who you know is walking in humility rather than someone who has a tendency to be self-righteous or talk down to you. And we're skipping ahead a little, but that humility only comes from one place. It has to come from verse 32. 
the last verse we read, the knowledge of your forgiveness in Christ. When you think of what God had to do to forgive the sin in your life, when you think of what God had to lay on the back of his own son in order to accept you in his place, that's where the humility to approach someone else, even in anger, has to come from. Okay, so that's hard. That's hard enough, right? You might say, you know what? I've got one that's even harder than that. What about the really hard things? What about the things that just don't go away? What about the painful experiences that people go through or that I've gone through or that my loved ones have gone through that can't be undone? What about the times that people got scarred for life? What about situations where the offense is so great that it seems like our bitterness and our desire for revenge are really more than justified? What about those times? I'm going to give you one testimony I've read recently, then I'm going to give you one biblical case study, then we'll be done. I read an article this week by Craig Groeschel. He is a uh, pastor of a large multi-site church out in the Midwest. He's written some books, and, and this article was actually adapted from a section of a book that he wrote, which is called Soul Detox. Some of you may have read that book. I'm going to read kind of an extended excerpt from the article, so get ready for a long one, but I think you'll be able to stay with it. Groeschel says this. He says, My biggest struggle with bitterness started when my family discovered the awful truth about a very sick man we had trusted in a position of authority over my little sister. To many kids, Max was a favorite sixth grade teacher, always cutting up, telling jokes, and handing out easy A's. To me, he became the object of the deepest bitterness that I have ever known. Throughout the years, Max developed special relationships with his favorite students. Though none of us were aware of it at the time, we discovered years later that all his favorite students happened to be cute young girls. My little sister, whom I treasured and loved, became one of Max's victims. The day I found out that Max had molested my little sister remains one of the most disturbing, surreal times in my life. Unfortunately, she wasn't the only victim. Girl after girl recounted similar stories of how Max had sexually abused them. Painfully, we learned that this twisted teacher carefully selected his victims, showered them with presents, and lured them into his trap. The once beloved teacher had created an extensive collection of lives shattered by his unholy desires. I remember trying to absorb the painful truth. How should I respond? Should we track him down? Have him arrested? Beat the life out of him? I was furious the moment I heard about his abuse, but the more I thought about him, my anger blossomed into rage. The seeds of bitterness planted in my heart grew to a full-blown briar patch of revenge. I prayed that Max would suffer eternally in hell, and I vowed to make him suffer on earth before facing God's judgment. My plan for revenge wasn't necessary. To my bittersweet delight, we found out that Max was suffering in a hospital, fighting for his life against a crippling disease, muscular dystrophy. I remember thanking God for his justice in giving Max what he deserved. Most would agree that my bitterness toward Max was justifiable. After what he did to my sister and his other victims, who could blame me for being angry? No matter how justifiable my feelings were, however, in God's eyes, my self-righteous hatred was just as sinful as Max's crime. Even writing that statement all these years later remains difficult. How could my desire for justice be considered as sinful as this monster's lustful actions? The vast majority of people would agree that my hate and judgmental rage were more than justified. In the course of time, however, I learned that bitterness never draws us closer to God. 
Bitterness is a non-productive, toxic emotion, usually resulting from resentment and unmet needs. I was angry that my family could not hurt Max in return for what he stole from my sister. My unmet need was not only for justice but for retribution. I wanted him to suffer, to live with the awful awareness of the kind of man he was and what he did. Instead, I was punishing no one but myself and those around me who experienced the scalding spillovers of the acid churning inside me. My self-induced misery led only to a chain reaction. Like a master criminal needing support for a big heist, bitterness never works alone. Its insidious partners include jealousy, anger, hatred, disobedience, contempt, gossip, rage, and countless other tagalongs. The job they're planning is to rob anyone they can of peace, hope, joy, forgiveness, and mercy. Instead of just inflicting one cut on our souls, bitterness and its gang litter our spiritual path with layers of crushed glass, leaving us to bleed a slow, agonizing death of resentful rage. God's Word shows us clearly the dangers of bitterness. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. He's quoting Hebrews there. Though we can't control the outcome, we're called to do everything possible to live at peace with others, even those or especially those who have hurt us. End of quote. So, I'd say we're just supposed to forgive and forget, right? Just depend, just pretend it never happened. Just sweep it under the rug. Is, is that what he's telling us to do? Not exactly. Not exactly. Yeah, the, yes, the, path, the only path away from bitterness and from almost every other destructive kind of anger must lead through forgiveness. It almost always leads through forgiveness. That's very true. And forgiveness is hard. I often define forgiveness as deciding to live with the consequences of someone else's sin. It's a hard thing to absorb, no question about it. But it might look a little different than you think. Before we close, and I'm going to end with this, but I just want to look at one biblical case study of forgiveness. This is a forgiveness, by the way, of a really big thing, actually a series of big things. And this might help us figure out what it looks like in practice realistically speaking, when we forgive somebody for something huge. You find it in 1 Samuel 26. You can turn there if you want. You don't have to. I'm just going to tell you the story. But it really is 1 Samuel 26, and it happens twice. 1 Samuel 26, and before that in 1 Samuel 24. I'm just going to tell you the story. It concerns David. David, before he was king, he was a fugitive. And David, at this point in the story, has been running from King Saul who has gotten more and more evil. He's been running from King Saul now for many months, even years at this point, though David has done nothing wrong. In Saul's jealousy and rage, he has tried to kill David already on at least four occasions. He has murdered 80 priests simply because they gave David food and supplies. He has taken away David's first wife and given her to another man. He has made it impossible for David to ever see his best friend again. He has forced David to move his family out of the country to keep them out of danger. His family is now living in Moab and away from Israel, and David hasn't seen them in a long time. So basically, Saul has ruined David's life in just about every way you could ruin someone's life. And you know David, maybe? He's such a passionate guy. He's got to be angry, right? 
He's an emotional person. You think there's any anger there? There's a lot of anger there. But as we cut to the beginning of the scene in 1 Samuel 26, what's happening is Saul's out trying to hunt down David. He's got his whole army out there doing it, but his army is sleeping on a hillside. And Saul is sound asleep. He's in a deep sleep on the ground. It says the Lord has put him into this deep sleep, so he's not waking up. He's he's sleeping on the ground, and there is a spear stuck in the ground inches from Saul's head that's sticking up. And David and his friend Abishai are standing next to the spear looking down at Saul. That's the situation. And Abishai says, dude, (laughs) if you don't want to do this, I'm happy to do it for you. David responds, do not destroy him. Who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and remain guiltless? The Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will perish in battle. He ends up saying, let's just take the spear and leave. So they do. And when David and Abishai get a a safe distance away, David cries out to Saul, and he wakes him up. And Saul kind of comes to, and he's realizing what has happened, and he he gets kind of half convicted, which has happened to him before, and Saul spits out this pathetic apology, just like he did two chapters earlier when the same thing happened. So David has every right to be disgusted and just filled with hatred for this man. But here is a selection of David's words. Some are from 1 Samuel 24, some are from 26, the two different occasions. But here's what David says. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may he avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. May the Lord judge and give sentence between me and you. Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? What have I done? What evil is in my hands? Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like a partridge in the mountains. Behold, as your life was precious in my sight, may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. Now, what is this? This is humility. This is forgiveness. But this is a far cry from just saying it's okay, isn't it? It's different. It's a far cry from David saying, oh, don't worry about it, Saul, no problem. I know you've been trying to kill me for several years and all this. Now, let's just, let's just let bygones be bygones and pretend the whole thing never happened. No. David is very honest. He reminds Saul of the ridiculous and evil nature of what he's doing, and he reminds Saul of his own innocence. But most importantly, and I want you to catch this because it's the main thing, he turns Saul over to God. What happens to Saul is not up to David. It's up to God. And David says he might die in battle. God might just supernaturally strike him down suddenly. Or his day may come. In other words, he might die of old age. Imagine that. And you can tell that David here is not exactly wishing Saul a long and happy life. He's not doing that. And he certainly doesn't trust Saul. And we need to be clear about that. Forgiveness does not automatically mean that you trust the person right away. Sometimes that takes a long time. But David refuses to be judge, jury, and executioner in Saul's case. And that frees him from having to spend the rest of his life plotting how to take revenge and how to make Saul's life miserable. In other words, it frees him from bitterness. He doesn't have to carry that around. 
the only person who can free you from the prison of your bitterness, or on the other hand, the need to blow up, is God. Ultimately, the only way to successfully deal with your anger at another person is to grant forgiveness, and in doing so, you are turning the person over to God, because God is the only qualified judge. Vengeance is mine, it is mine to repay, declares the Lord. That is an Old Testament quote. It sounds like an Old Testament quote, but guess what? Paul quotes it in the New Testament. Right after he says this, don't seek revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. In other words, God knows how to handle the person. God knows how to handle the person. In the end, every sin ever committed is going to be paid for one of two places, either in hell or on the cross. And while it may, in some cases it might take you a while as you seek that heart where you truly desire the person's salvation instead of their condemnation, in the meantime, remember, you cannot and I cannot handle the burden of being judge, jury, and executioner. We're not qualified. And you know why? Because when you think about it, what we really are is co-defendants. There is, the Bible says, that it says, it, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good. There is none who seeks after God. Only by the completely undeserved mercy and grace of Jesus Christ dying on the cross in our place can we ever find forgiveness and acceptance with God. That's right. Who are we to pronounce judgment on somebody else? We need to let it go. It's hard. We need to take it to the cross. We need to give it to God. Only He can handle our pain. Only He can handle our anger.